Well, peace be with you. Peace be with you at home as well. Love you, miss you. Um, you're stuck in loneliness at all. For those that are at home, make sure you reach out and, and uh, we'll connect with you as best we can. Um, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew. Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 through 35. So it's a little short, short passage for us this morning. Um, so turn your Bible on, get it out, and you can follow along on the screens. Um, we're in the Passion Week. We're kind of leading up to the death uh, of Jesus. Um, but before we get there, last week we talked about um, communion. We looked at the Lord's Supper. We looked at him. He's in the upper room and all of that. And they had just left. And uh, so here, here, here's what Matthew tells us. Picking up in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter answered him. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the word of the Lord. This story, I love this little story, and I perennial truth preaching on just this little bit because I actually think it's super helpful uh, but this story reminds me of a perennial truth that God's people are so frequently found fragile <laughs> and un- undependable you know they're they're unstable people throughout the Bible and even in our day God's people are just just always perennially like that um, and so it, despite having so much knowledge and in most cases so much time spent learning about God I mean these very disciples have spent time just with Jesus in the flesh, and yet they're still so unimpressive at times. And I just think it's so helpful. And we just never can miss that aspect uh, and that kind of honesty of the Bible. And yet God, in spite of that, in spite their undependability and the fact that they're unstable and they're fragile human beings at some times, despite all of that, God chooses them, God forgives them, and God still works with them. He still participates with them. And the same is true of you, and the same is true of me. One of... Here's the thing, just ever since I was on sabbatical, I've had this kind of goal of being more, in a, in a way that's helpful, more transparent, more honest with those around me. So one of, the, one of the painful lessons I was confronted with in 2020, were any of you confronted with painful lessons in 20? 2020, yeah, yeah, good. So one of the painful lessons I was confronted with in 2020 was my insecurity, my deep insecurity in the face of not knowing what to do. I got a little secret for you. Leaders of all organizations across the entire globe, let me just tell you something. They don't have a clue of what they're doing. They might, your, your, your boss or the owner of your company or whatever it is, you know, the principal at your school, they may put on a confident front of knowing what to do in the midst of pandemic. I'm telling you, they don't have a clue. There's, no, there was, there's been no precedent and it's incredibly, it conjures up a lot of anxiety when you do not know what to do. 
So I, 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 I had to face some of that, still do today. And um, coupled with that, um, I had to wrestle with this incredible disappointment that I felt over people's capacity for deep division and tribalism. I'm a, okay, so for those of you, Meyer Briggs people, I'm an INFJ. Can I get an amen? I'm, I'm sensitive. You're like, really? Yeah. No, I am. And so when people fight, I'm like, ugh. And so for any of you grand folks, I'm, I'm like a raging nine. So, so when people fight, I feel it and I hide. <laughs> you know, like that's what I do. I really want to bring peace and healing. I really want to bring reconciliation. That's like... I just want that so bad, and that didn't happen in 2020. You know what I'm saying? So it was a hard year for me. And so um, I can say a lot about what I've learned about the human condition over the last year. But to stay on course here, I'd like to just highlight the incredible difficulty it was for me to remain hopeful and positive for people that are, that are not going to change despite more insight. Sometimes you have to learn, and I'm learning, that more insight won't necessarily change people. And you have to figure out what you're going to do about that, and, and, I'm, and I'm learning what to do about that. I've just been a certainty addict, and I, I, I think for me, I've been addicted to the idea that more insight could help divisive attitudes. Like, if they'll just understand me, they'll stop. Doesn't work like that. And so uh, the question will be, came for me, and I wrestled through this over a couple months that I was out from here and taking a break. Um, one of the things I wrestled with was, um, will you continue to draw near? Will you continue, Matt, to remain steadfast in your love and your proclamations, or will you just become depressed and cynical? Like, those are your, kind of my options, um, and so it's, it's, was one of the most, it's been one of the most challenging con- confrontations of my spiritual and professional life this past year. So I say all of that, because you're like, whoa, this is a weird introduction to a sermon. Um, I say all of that to say that's what makes what Jesus is doing in this little moment so remarkable. Because um, knowing all the undependability of the disciples doesn't throw him into despair, um, he remains calm, loving, steadfast with these guys. Um, and he has such a vision for them. He has like vi- really big vision for his kids. And I, I know that. Um, like he, 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 doesn't, he sees the failure, but he doesn't just see them as failures. Right? You, have, you gave me an amen. Thank you. Thank you. We need to be an amen in church. So... He, he's able to see them as these nuanced, complex people. We don't do that so well. Like, I was confronted with that this past year. I, me and my wife just finished up our first year of kindergarten. I mean, we're not in kindergarten, but my oldest is. <laughs> and so I just finished up my first year of, like, parent-teacher conference. That was really profound for me. It was a really profound thing. You know why it was a really profound thing? Because you're, like, you're an INFJ. Uh, no, because I... You know, as, the, as her kindergarten teacher was going through the, like, her accomplishments and things like this, here's the, the shock. She was not perfect. I was like, what do you mean there are weaknesses? Um, and, like, what's hard, and I didn't expect this as a parent, is, like, as you're hearing the list, you know, you're going through the things that they're doing well, and, and they get to the areas, the little things that they're struggling with, and you just, 
it like really conjures up shame. Because as a parent, you see it and you go, that's me. Like, I do that. You know what I mean? Like, she got that from me. And so then it's like, you, and so like, here I am, I'm like feeling sensitive and I'm like with a kindergarten teacher, which by the way, God love you. You are a saint if you are a kindergarten teacher. And, um, and the other thing about it was I noticed like that first couple of weeks after these things where like I, you, it's complex. Like you, you can't just be stuck on the failure of your child. Like, but you, but you do have, you can't excuse it. So you can't just like, well, whatever. I'm only going to look at the light, not the dark, dark, shadowy sides of her. But you can't be stuck on the dark, shadowy sides. So you, I have to see her for who she is, like an image bearer in process. And so like, as much as I wanted to talk to her about her weaknesses, and I did, I also have to remember, well, that's not all she is. Like, she's complex. And she's in process, and she's going to be someone different. I need to have a vision for that. You, you following me? You tracking with me? Okay, so um, I'm convinced that what transformed the disciples into rocks and pillars of hope and faith and love was not their work ethic. And it was definitely not their first pass at discipleship. And it was not their ability to get it right the first time. It Instead, it was their encounter with their frailty and Jesus' persistent forgiveness, even in their worst moments. That's what made them, you know what I mean, the people that they became. It came through them confronting their own deficiencies and shame, all right, and then also confronting the fact that Jesus is covering it, and he loves them in spite of it, and he's changing them. Like, those two dynamics. So, um, that's all I really want to talk to you about today is just if you really want to be a different person as a follower of Jesus, the way forward is confronting your own shame dynamics. There you go. There's your invitation. You can leave now if you're like, I don't want to talk about shame. You know what I mean? Like, so the feelers in the room are like, yes. And those that you're out of touch with your feelings are like, no. And you're the ones that actually need to be here. And you need to sit through this for a little bit. So, here you go, right? C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Four Loves. I'm sure some of you are familiar with this. He says, love anything and your heart will be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make, if you want to, if you, if you make, want to keep, make sure the keeping tech, you must give it to no one, eat, not even an animal, wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless. It will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Yes. Yes. To truly love and follow Jesus as a disciple beckons you into vulnerability. Just does. Because part of what it means to be vulnerable, it means to confront your own deficiencies and shame. You know what I mean? Like, that's... The things about yourself that you hate, hide, protect. Loving Jesus means following Jesus. Following Jesus means that you're going to likely end up in situations when your image is threatened. Uh, And so you'll feel convicted to make decisions that put you at odds with other people. And then you're going to have to deal with, like, how does that, like... You know, how does that threaten you and make you feel? And then it conjures up all sorts of shame. You, you look carefully at what's happening. Jesus is confronting them 
or he's talking to them up front, telling them up front, soon you guys are going to abandon me. Why does he do that? I mean, why doesn't he just let it unfold? Like, ask yourself, why, why would, Jesus, why do you need to talk about it up front before it happens? Like, do you just want to, like, kick them when they're down? Verse 31, you will fall away because of why? Why will they fall away? Because of me. Like, your contact with me, your loyalty to me will be the very reason. It'll, be, it'll conjure up the reason for you to abandon me. Loyalty puts them at risk. They just won't be able to bear it. They don't know it yet, but that's what's going to happen. And you'll read about this next week. But the hard truth is that, um, or the hard truth itself isn't the last word that Jesus gives them, is it? Maybe you didn't catch it, because it's almost like in passing, you just read it over. But he follows it up immediately with a word of peace. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, what's he saying? Now, you, for a long, long, for many, 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 many years, it's like, do we interpret this, translate this geographically or spiritually? And it's both. In other words, what he's saying is he's saying, listen, you're going to screw up. But after the sorrow, I'll be resurrected and I'll be waiting for you in Galilee. Essentially, it's a little claim of their forgiveness and their future. Like, he's not just saying, I'm going to resurrect, and you'll find me in Galilee. That's where you can find me. Although that's partly. But he's also saying, I still want to participate with you. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, not, it's just a claim of his power over death, but it's also a claim of his power to forgive and persevere with failed people. I mean... And here's the little side note. Man, this is forgiveness in the purest form. Just that little comment. Like, think about it. Who are you mad at right now? <laughs> You're like, that's a long list. Well, or when you think of your past and you think of people you've been angry with and you have forgiven maybe. Like, it's one thing to be like, hey, I forgive you. Like, I'm water under the bridge. I'm dropping it. There's peace between me and you. It's another thing to say, and I want to hang out with you all the time. You know it's true. Like, you have people in your life right now, you're like, oh, I forgave them. And it's like, how many times have you seen them this year? And they're like, well, we don't, we don't talk anymore. And I mean, I get it. Like, that's, you know what I mean? Like, that's forgiveness and trust. Those are kind of different, you know what I mean? We categorize those. But Jesus doesn't work like that. And it's like, you're not Jesus, and neither am I. But Jesus is like, he, he forgives, and then he's like, yeah, and then I'm committed to the process with you. I'm not done with you, right? He's saying to these guys, though you'll fail, I'm not finished with you. So why does he do it? Get back to the question, why does he say it up front? Well, is it just to show that he's in control? Maybe, a little bit, yes. But I think on a spiritual and emotional level, Jesus is teaching them to confront their own sense of shame that they will inevitably feel and not try to hide from it Listen to this, listen, not, not, not try to project it onto other people. Just let that sit, you know what I mean? Like, let it, you own it. Like, I think he's saying, I, I, in a subtle way, I think Jesus is inviting them into this way of life where be aware of the shame, name the shame, like name it, own it. Take responsibility for it. Don't put the responsibility on her. Don't put the responsibility on your spouse. 
Like part of taking responsibility for shame is to not just say what it is, but then to say this is how it impacts people. It's tough. It's a big work. That's what he's inviting them into. John 16 records the same little event. He adds this little extra line where he says afterwards, this is verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Like, if you don't confront the shame, and it's painful and it's hard, but if you don't confront the things that are going on, your own deficiencies and the shame that you feel about the deficiencies, you actually don't end up having peace. And Jesus wants peace for us. Well, here's what's utterly fascinating, right? Apparently, Peter never hears the forgiveness in future part. He just hears the critique. Like, he's me in the parent-teacher conference. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, so, like, there's, you know, I can't remember how many value, little evaluations, but let, there was a lot. And there was like just maybe a couple that she did wrong. I was stuck there. Like, that's what's weird, you know what I mean? Like, criticism hurts. I heard a guy say recently, you preachers, you have a weird, it's a weird deal for you. I'm like, why? It's like, well, because, like, if you're trained a certain way, so, like, if you preach a sermon, and you come out of that sermon, and somebody's like, that sermon was awesome, you're trained up to be like, take no credit, right? So you're trained up to say, this is the Holy Spirit. God did it. Right? right? Amen. But Barry knows the deal. <laughs> they always say that to him. But here's the thing, right? Then he goes, but here's the thing. If you come out of a sermon and somebody's like, hey, man, I got to take up issue with what you said. You don't say, that was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you own it. He's like, then you got to go home and sit with the criticism. It's all on you. He's like, you get no credit. You get all the blame. Now, here's the thing. None of you criticize me. So I actually don't have to work through this process. <laughs> but like that's, it's, it's, criticism's weird like that, isn't it? Like, you carry all the criticism around all week. You didn't carry the praise. Like, it hurts. And it hurts Peter, and he can't. He just can't. He just can't. It was all he heard, and he's stuck right there. All he heard was failure. He just shut down, and he's stuck, and he immediately jumps into a passionate protest and selfish assertion. Look at verse 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. So the theological way of understanding this is Peter wants the kingdom of God without the crucifixion. Or like he wants resurrection without death. Don't work like that. Or, or I, I like this. To say it a different way, he, he, Peter in this moment, he wants a new life. He just doesn't want to confront the current one he has. And it doesn't work like that with Jesus. It doesn't work like that when you're trying to be a disciple with Jesus. So to be fair, I, look, I admired Peter. Like, this needs to be said. Because what I'm about to get into a little bit is going to sting for some of us. I want to say something up front. I like Peter. I really do. There are some that are like Peter in this room, and I want you to know we are absolutely dependent upon you. Here's what I mean. Like, Peter in the modern-day church is, like, serving all the time. He won't get caught dead not giving. He won't miss a Sunday, and he doesn't miss a quiet time. Like, he's passionate, he's fiery, he means well. Churches, to be honest, don't get very far without Peter. 
I mean, to jump ahead, remember, it's Peter is the rock and the church is built around him. But like the Peter that we read earlier that wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter, the, 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 the Peter that writes these or uh, uh, preaches these amazing sermons in the book of Acts, he, that's a totally different guy than this guy, but yet it's the same guy. How's that happen? Failure. Shame. Being confronted with it and changing and being healed. Is he passionate? Oh, yes. Does he mean well? Oh, yes. Is he trying to be duplicitous? No. I really don't think so. Peter just doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know that he loves perfectionism more than he loves grace. Let it sit. Let it sit. Like, he doesn't, it's not that, I, I, I wouldn't say that Peter would, if I asked Peter, you asked Peter, do you love grace? He might say yes. It's like, do you love perfectionism more? Hmm. Say it a different way. At the very least, Peter doesn't realize that he finds more of his identity and his dedication to Jesus than his forgiveness. Like, that's what he latches on to. This is a common thing for Peter. Um, chapter 16, back then, Jesus, if you remember, Jesus told his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter protested, didn't he? He was the one that shot off his mouth then, too. He didn't like the shame of a failed project, right? So he's the first one. Jump in. Far be it from you, Jesus. Uh-uh. Not, not you, Jesus. That will not happen on my watch or on yours. Like, it's not going to happen that way. And now here Peter protests again. He, he can't handle the shame of being a failed disciple. He doesn't know it, but he just refuses to be a grace project. He wants to be a winning project. That's an amen. You know what I mean? Because you want to be the winning project too, just like me. So he doesn't realize that, but he doesn't realize that, that this is not what Jesus, he won't have it, Jesus won't have it any other way. The new humanity, remember, this is what Jesus is ultimately doing. He's remaking the whole world, he's remaking a whole new humanity. And the new humanity won't be a bunch of winning projects. There'll be a bunch of grace projects. And that makes a huge difference in the feel <laughs> of that new humanity. He doesn't realize that the new humanity won't be transformed because they hid or avoided shame, but because they confronted their shame, they encountered their shame, and they encountered healing through it. When you can't confront your deficiencies and your shame, you're prone to do what Peter here is doing, and that is you're going to throw all your weight into this kind of spiritual perfectionism. That's what you do. And that's what whole churches do. That's what whole denominations do. They just throw all their weight into a spiritual perfectionism because they just can't deal with this idea. And you, you can see right here in the story, it's really quick, but it's profound. You can see right here in the story how and why it's so unbearable to be around, like when you don't get it. And why Jesus refuses to build a new, new humanity of people centered around spiritual perfectionists. I'll give you just three, three reasons why. You ready? Here's the first one. Spiritual perfectionism refuses to be human-sized. 
They just refuse to be human-sized. Something other than human is what they really want. They don't know it, but that's what they're doing. I mean, because look at how overconfident Peter is here. Oh, never fail. <laughs> really? I will never fall. Uh, the, this professor, Chuck DeGroat, wrote this great book. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church. It's mostly about pastors, and I read it, and it is brutal. But it is lot, it's about churches, too like narcissistic systems in churches and how they participate as well. It is not a fun book to read, but it is a necessary book to read. And he writes this, quote, Narcissism is born in the soil of shame and self-contempt, not healthy self-love. He does this whole background piece on narcissists, you know, the Greek mythology, narcissists, and the fact his, his issue was not self-love. He didn't love himself at all. He loved his image. He spent so much time cultivating and protecting the image. That's the reason why he disintegrates and dies. But anyway, narcissism is not fundamentally about self-love, but about escape from love. The fragile little boy, this, this, this book was brutal. The fragile little boy goes into hiding, and the protective false self takes the lead. And then he quotes uh, a counselor, John Bradshaw, here. Uh, because the exposure of self to self lies at the heart of neurotic shame, escape from the self is necessary. The escape from self is accomplished by creating a false self. The false self is always more or less human. You, know, you, you see what he's saying? Like for you to, all he's saying is, is it's, it's incredibly difficult to be confronted with who you actually are. So one of the protective ways that you do, what you do, and I do it, is we create a person that we can bear to look at. This, I, I, this might be really tough for some people. So just, you can shut your eyes and plug your ears like if it's too much to handle. But this stuff is so important and really hard for us. It's hard for me. The Bible's trying to say that to be a human, which is what you are, who wants to follow Jesus means to be someone who is anxious. To be human is to be anxious. And, and, and you're failing sometimes, and you're full of regrets, and you're full of shame, but you're loved by God. And, and you are forgiven in Christ, and you are being worked on by the Spirit, and then therefore you are a beautiful work in progress. And until you embrace all the discomfort and the tension of that, you won't really transform. But to not confront and embrace this identity will cause you to be someone always trying to distinguish yourself, because that's what Peter's doing. He's trying to distinguish himself. This is a theological selfie, this comment. It's like, I'm different than everybody else. Look at me. He's always trying to, you'll be, I will always be trying to distinguish myself as superhuman, somehow not subject to the same shame that everybody else feels. And as a result, here's the thing, this is why Jesus won't have it in the new humanity, as a result, you'll be terribly difficult to be around. You know what I mean? People that refuse to be human-sized are difficult to be around. It's difficult for you 
it's difficult for this person to have any intimacy with, with people. You understand what I mean? Like when, when people are spiritual perfectionists, they're, they're really bad at intimacy. Do you know that? Do you know why? Because people don't know who you are. And do you know why they don't know who you are? Because you don't know who you are. You, like you're out of touch with it. The only thing you know is the thing you've been cultivating for all these years. So then there's this whole disconnect between you and your spouse, you and your friends, that you, you guys might not all know it, but that's what's happening. To really be human-sized is to actually come in contact with who you are, and then people start to come in contact with who you are. And it's painful, and it's beautiful, all wrapped up in one. If you're always aiming at perfection, always avoiding your own shame issues, you won't let anyone in on who you really are. So, second thing. Spiritual perfectionism will lead to condescension. It's always, it'll always be a little condescending. You see it in Peter, right? Why does he lump in the other guys? They might fall. <laughs> but I won't. It's like, whoa, Petey, what's that have to do? What's that, what do they have to do with this? And to be fair, you know, they end up, yeah, signing on to the same thing at the end there. But Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You know, whether he knows it or not, Peter's being incredibly condescending here. One of the best ways to stay off um, your own shortcomings and your own sense of shame is to create a spiritual measuring stick of your own design and excel at them in a particular way of distinguishing yourself from the pack. That was 2020, by the way. No one is willing to deal with their own shame, so they just project it onto the other side. So I can vividly remember this. This is an example of what I mean. I can vividly remember being a kid, and I was in a Sunday school class, and this God-fearing, and I mean that. I'm not being sarcastic. God-fearing, Bible-loving teacher stood in front of a group of us little boys, and he held up a, he held up a, a newly minted NIV. For those of you who don't know, New International Version Bibles, they're great. Love them. Uh, and that had just dropped in 1978. So it was fresh, man. It was like, oh, you know, and he held up an NIV in one hand, he held up a KJV in the other hand. You know where this is going, church folk. <laughs> King James Bible. So he holds up King James and he holds up NIV. And he, he looks at the, he holds up the NIV and he says, some people say this is the word of God. And then he grabs a trash can and he goes, this ain't the word of God, it's trash. And he, now here's the thing. I had an NIV study Bible. I would, everybody had an NIV study Bible in 1980-whatever it was. Like we all, ha, it's like some of you have them. I have one now. They're awesome. Do you, so like I don't even know what the rest of his message was, but the impact was made. And the impact was, oh, there's like some smart Christians and then dumb Christians. You see what I'm saying? And I could think of hundreds of little examples of, like that over the years that you get exposed to. And then it took years for me to realize, years <laughs> for me to understand that all those early days in my own ministry and teaching that I was carefully dropping in quotes of Luther, Calvin, and Augustine had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that I found them helpful to my understanding as much as it was actually about me trying to cover the shame that I never felt smart enough to be in front of people. 
because I had been under the weight of condescending Christians, and now I'm becoming one. It's tough. So it always leads to condescension, and we know how that works out for relationships. Third, spiritual perfectionism is typically and tragically ironic. To be fair to Peter, in the scene, all the disciples are making the same dodge away from the shame, right? Uh, They're all saying, yeah, we're not going to fail either. But Peter's the one making the really bold claim, right? And you can't miss the fact that the one making the most self-assertive claim here ends up being the one that falls the hardest, doesn't he? All the disciples will scatter, as you see, but it's Peter who ends up declaring this, a complete and assertive denial of his allegiance when he's asked about it. I mean, it's, it, it, Peter makes this huge protest, ah, oh, not me, not me, you know? He's practically beating his chest. I can do it, my own willpower. And essentially what Jesus says, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. You know what he's, all he's saying? Jesus is saying, buddy, you're not even gonna make it till tomorrow. That's, what, that's exactly what he's saying. Before the sun comes up, man, you're not going to fulfill what you just said. That's how tragically ironic this is. Peter's false self is writing checks his true self will never cash. And I think this one, maybe above all of them that I've been talking about, is the one is what you see in spiritually serious churches all the time that just, it just, it just kills them. It, it, if discipleship is to Jesus is based on your dedication and your spiritual hard work, you'll never access the real power of change. That's the unfortunate, tragic irony of it. You know what I mean? You just ignore the interior life going on in here, and then you have, the Spirit never does the work, and so you actually don't change. And then so eventually... People like this, they fall, but they don't necessarily fall any harder than other people, but it looks so bad because they've been the ones working so hard and proclaiming big things, and so then the whole world is like hypocrites, and it's just horrible for the mission of God. So what am I inviting us, you know, you into? I, 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 here's what I think I'm trying to say is I'm inviting you to become someone who has a constant but kind, careful nuance there, a constant but kind attention to your own deficiencies and shame. I know I'm in dangerous territory talking about all this shame stuff because depending uh, on how long you've been in therapy over the years, um, this, like talking about shame can be totally cliche. But listen, please hear me. What I'm saying is we need to do this in such a way that it's commingled with the forgiving and loving words of Jesus. Like, don't focus on all your shame and not bring in, like, the rest of what Jesus is saying. You know what I mean? So that's why I say it's like some people are always self-critical, always thinking about their own shame. And you're like, really, man? That's what you want me to do? And it's like, yeah, but you're not kind to yourself. Be as kind to yourself as God is kind to you. Try that on for a week. Like, there's an honesty, and then there's also this peace This is a work that leads into peace, or it should. So Jesus doesn't want us ignoring the shame through projecting our great deeds and our super dedication, Uh, but he doesn't want us wallowing in our shame either. 
like somehow that's super spiritual, which by the way, I see this all the time in the church here and other places with Christians that they think it is super spiritual to wallow in shame. It is not super spirituality. It is exhibitionism. It is your way to get attention. To say, I know I am sinful, sinful, sinful. I'm not even a human. I'm a worm. And that is super spiritual. And it's like, dude, you are not even reading the Bible. Yes, you are a failed person. <laughs> but God loves you and is changing you. Take, take responsibility means to take responsibility of your sin is to say, like, yes, take this, Jesus. Now I am a new creation. There is hope for me. I can change. It's all there. So he's not asking us to ignore and, uh, the shame, and he's not asking us to wallow in it. He's saying own it, name it, right? One of my consultants says you, when you name it, you tame it. You just rip the head off of it. You take tons of power out of it. Just name it. He wants us aware of it, confessing it, asking for help to die to it, and then living out of gratitude that it doesn't get the last word in your life, that his love and his forgiveness gets the last words. Now, here's the thing. If, this, none of, if your shame dynamics don't immediately come to your mind, here's the last thing I'll ask you to do. Like, if you're like, I don't even know. Like, I don't know what's going on underneath. You know what I mean? Here's, what, here's the thing, and this is really hard. I dare you to do it. You ready? Grab somebody really safe. Like, if you're not in therapy, go get therapy. But find a really good therapist. Uh, find a friend that a safe, trusted friend that knows you pretty well, or your spouse, if they're safe, sit down with them and just ask this question. Like, if you don't know what I'm talking about any of this, just say, ask them this question. Um, how do you experience me? That, that's it. And, just, and then just say, hit me with it. Just be honest, the good, the bad, the ugly, just how do you experience me? And just listen to the adjectives. Again, this needs to be done with somebody very safe. Like, because if somebody weaponizes it against you, now you know. This is not a safe relationship. A safe relationship is honest, but does not weaponize that stuff against you. So, how do you experience me? As you hear the adjectives, the good and the shadowy, hard stuff, just let it sit. Let it sit. Take time to process what might be lying underneath? That was my verse from 2020 after all the struggles of insecurities that I've had. Uh, the NLT version, John 7, verse 24. Look beneath the surface so that you can judge correctly, Jesus says. Like, take the time to look beneath the surface to, so that you can actually see it for what it is. So let that stuff sit with you. And then as it comes, as you, as you do, you might start to realize, oh, what's, when I do X, when I do blankety blank, whatever, What's behind that is actually this going on in me. And I'm trying to cover it. I'm trying to, you know, whatever. So that's my invitation for you. I hope that you can, you know, spend some time in that. It's a slow work. I grant that. But we got time here. So as we come into communion this morning, let us remember that Jesus both confronts us with our shame, but he also confronts us with his forgiveness and his love. And so please take whatever time you need before you take part in communion. If, um, if you're not a Christian, man, we are so glad you're here, and we hope that you connect with us. All right, let us pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we are reminded that although you don't hold back and 
making sure we know the hard truths about ourselves, that is all in love so that we might become, by your grace and through your spirit, completely different people, a new humanity that will be a blessing to all of the earth. What an invitation. What a great adventure, and we are so thankful for that. We praise your name for the rest of our time together. It's in Jesus' name that we always pray. Amen.